thank you to everyone who has downloaded these episodes or listened to them on iTunes in the past few weeks. I am up to around 3,400 downloads, something that has been completely unexpected for me, and I am just insanely grateful for all of the good vibes and nice comments I have been getting. If you enjoy the show, I would only ask that you let your friends know and like the Facebook page, since the bigger this thing gets, the more time I can hopefully put into it. One specific shout-out I need to make, though, is to TJ, the writer and presenter of the upcoming Pints and Puzzles podcast. He sent me the microphone that you hear me on today, and I've got to say, it is fantastic. He's a really smart guy, and always has very interesting takes on my topics. So once his podcast gets off the ground, I would suggest everyone give his a listen. Although to be fair, my podcast is hardly off the ground, but you never know. The other person I absolutely need to thank is Carrie Sheehan, who designed my awesome new logo. It is seriously too little to say that I love the way this thing looks, and she is the one who made it happen. Carrie happens to be a friend from high school back when we both went to Staten Island Tech in Staten Island, New York, and she's still a local artist in the New York City area. Give her work some love on her Etsy page or on ksheheen.com. That's K-S-H-E-H-E-E-N.com, where you can see not only the things available for sale, but also her thesis work and more serious sorts of projects. If you like spooky stuff and skeletons and optical illusions, her work is going to be perfect for you. And if you enjoy the topics on this show, I have a feeling you will like her stuff very much. Although, if you don't like the topics of this show, it is unlikely that you are listening to this, isn't it? Anyways, just a warning before we go any further on this one. This episode is going to deal with some pretty dark and sad sorts of topics. So if that kind of thing isn't your bag, then maybe sit this one out. I have tried to be respectful and kind to all parties involved, and I hope that you as a listener enjoy this episode and come away from it feeling not too burdened. It isn't one with a happy ending, because for a thing to have a true ending, it needs to have a clear beginning or at the very least, a clear cause. And I'm not sure you're going to find one on this series of events. I've also kept most of the darker kinds of subjects towards the end, and I've also attempted to deal with this in the most neutral, statistical, scientific way possible. One of the most common fantasies that I at least have is the idea of just giving it all up and moving out into the woods and starting fresh. I'd bring Katie and the cat, and maybe some favorite books, but other than that, it would be all brand new. I think this is just part of having an active imagination, really. It's impossible to not think about what life would be like as someone else sometimes, and so the desire to maybe try something out for a day or two isn't, at least I don't think it is, all that uncommon. In fact, I saw once a documentary on an eccentric billionaire who does exactly that once a month every year. He just sets off with a little pocket knife and an emergency cell phone and lives like a hobo for the month. And I guess the idea of being a drifter or living life by the seat of your pants seems to have become almost a cliched millennial sort of thing, at least according to the internet. Although, according to the internet, President Obama is a lizard person, so who knows? This episode will touch on that idea of just leaving behind everything and becoming an unknown face in the crowd. Is it possible in this day and age to become truly anonymous, off the grid in such a powerful and complete way, 
that if you were to disappear or perish under some weird circumstance, that the people who knew you before under a different name couldn't find out what happened to you with a little bit of digging, or the police would be completely incapable of finding out who you are or were. And as a related issue, what the heck is going on in cases where people do seem to just disappear into thin air? Another big theme here, and one that we are going to talk about at length, is what the heck is going on in Boston, Mass, with a huge number of very odd cases of college-aged men seemingly disappearing, only to reappear a few days later floating in a body of water surrounding the city. I've been living and working in Boston now for almost five years, while I finish up my PhD, and it feels like almost every year since I've been here, there are cases just like this. Is there a serial killer on the loose who disposes of his victims in the waterways? Could these all just be due to natural sorts of deaths with a very strange pattern that is maybe unlikely, but not at all impossible to occur? Or could something even more sinister be going on? Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Today's episode... The Missing Men of Boston! I probably wouldn't be doing this episode if it wasn't for one of two things. First, my time with the Astonishing Research Corps, for Astonishing Legends, led to some really interesting results and theories about a particular case, known as the Somerton Man, and led to our group really finding some of what I would consider to be huge leads potentially, including settling quite strongly, in my opinion, on what edition of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, the famous Tamam Shud, rolled-up piece of paper, came from. The generals of the case are that on a beach in Somerton, in Adelaide, Australia, a body was found with a rolled-up piece of paper in his pocket with the words Tamam Shud written on them, and no other identifying information. More info on this case can be found in the Astonishing Legends episode on the Somerton Man, of course, so please give a listen to that. But regardless of the specifics of that single case, the whole idea of becoming a missing person, of being able to actually disappear without a clear trace of where you went or who you were, really made me start to look at these cases differently. Even in the modern world, it seemed like it wouldn't really be all that difficult to go missing if you really wanted to. The things that keep us in the world, as it were, are our connections to other people. Something that some philosophers like Nietzsche might argue make us in some ways beholden to the pressures and opinions of the group, as opposed to the convictions or power of our own values. This is often used as a trope in literature or other media, where this sort of argument is used to create stories of so-called existential heroes, People who have transcended these societal pressures to become their own person, usually causing them to act in ways that are criminal or extreme. This argument stems from the sorts of arguments that are often posed to atheists by those with religion. Namely, that if God doesn't exist or there is no universal morality holding us all to some set standard, then why act morally at all? Well, clearly, if God is the only thing causing one to act morally then it is sort of a bankrupt kind of ideal of the good or just, isn't it? In other words, if the only reason that you personally are acting as a good sort of person 
is because there is some punishment or reward in the afterlife, then is it really a good action you're doing or merely selfishly for your own benefit? On the other hand, is the person acting in a moral way, despite their lack of faith, merely being pressured into these actions by socially created norms? Some arbitrary set of rules laid down by those in power that we act with simply because to do otherwise results in our exclusion from the group. That is the sort of argument that Nietzsche makes in On the Genealogy of Morals, also oftentimes translated into English as On the Genealogy of Morality, where he argues that if one traces the root of our moral norms or social rules to their beginnings, we find that there seems to be a clear set of two rules, one for the rich and one for the poor. Or, as Nietzsche would say, one for those in power and one for those who are under the control of that power. He goes on to argue that this creates a master-slave dynamic, where those in power have a master morality, while those under that power act under the slave morality. And his biggest example of this sort of rule-setting is through religious law, whereby the poor are, in his estimation, tricked into accepting their horrible lot in life because of their belief in and desire of greater rewards in the afterlife. So while the rich are constantly consuming and ignoring the rules set forth by the church, the poor are told that their suffering in this life will lead to better things in the next. The Beatitudes highlight this argument especially well. The Beatitudes are eight sorts of quick religious sayings given by Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. They are as follows, quote, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And finally, blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which comes from the Gospel of St. Matthew, section 5, verses 3 through 10. All of these are things that enforce rules that make it easier for the common person to accept their lot in life. And all are things that those in power, in Nietzsche's argument, ignore. The meek inheriting the earth is all good so long as they can wait a while, since those in power already have the earth. Nietzsche goes on to argue that an individual who breaks free of this master-slave dynamic by ignoring the social rules set out by prevailing morals of their time can become a sort of superman or ubermensch who abides only by their own laws, and because of their strength of their convictions can go on to control others as well and bring them to their own cause. Basically, this person can create a society in their own image by overcoming the Christian moral tradition, which in Nietzsche's mind was only put into place to control the masses for the benefit of the rich or those in power. Karl Marx went on to continue this line of argument. By railing against organized religion and morality, but by placing the blame for the growth of these social rules and morals on the economic system of the day basically arguing that these sorts of social control systems are put in place to enforce an economic system, as opposed to a power system as Nietzsche claimed, 
although it isn't hard to see that the two ideas are very closely linked and almost interchangeable, at least in the way that we currently see money as linked to power. And these general ideas have laid the groundwork for a whole lot of our political and sociological ideas of today. And in many ways, the proof of at least some of these ideas can be found even in our daily lives. Although I don't want this to come off as a rail against organized religion. Simply that a lot of these sorts of philosophical ideas are interesting comments on religious power as well as social control. And so are things that I think people should think about. One of the most fascinating uses of this sort of social pressure idea is the way that buffets are set up. The next time you find yourself at one, take a look at the way that it is designed. The food is invariably as far away from the majority of the seating as possible, so that you have to walk past a large number of judgmental eyes on your way for a second plate. At the same time, the lights in the seating area are dim, while the lighting around the food is glaring and bright, further focusing attention on those who dare to get another bowl. And finally, the expensive foods are always ever so slightly more difficult to get to. If it isn't a server cutting out small portions of steak, causing you to need to sheepishly ask for a larger portion or go up for seconds, it's sushi put out at a slow pace that only one or two people can grab a roll at a time. Now, my mom loves buffets, so I have a lot of experience on the topic, and I've got to say it is fascinating to watch people at these places. One buffet in Staten Island, where I grew up, makes an especially interesting people-watching scene because of their surfing method of crab legs. Now, they probably put out like 10 crab legs at a time, every five minutes or so, and people will straight up stab each other to be the person who gets the most when they come out. But besides those three or four people who are literally shoving each other for a taste of that sweet, sweet aqua spider meat, no one else goes up. It must keep their cost for this high price item to a minimum and bring in those lesser, non-Ubermensch customers who abide by the laws of etiquette and instead resign themselves to eating the peasant dishes as opposed to the crab legs reserved for their betters. Alright, pretty big tangent. But in many ways, this desire to escape from society or start again is in response to these social pressures. In movies or TV shows where people become these sorts of existential hero-like characters, such as Fight Club, The Prisoner, almost every superhero movie, the main character is responding to social pressures or rules in ways that are against the grain. And while not always immoral, at the very least in ways that upset the status quo significantly. It isn't hard to imagine that in some cases, these people that seem to simply vanish maybe have been driven to escape from their everyday lives as a response to the sort of uncomfortable social norms or expectations people may find themselves in. Could someone really become anonymous in this day and age of forensic testing, Facebook, and ID cards required for a large number of quite basic necessities for living? Just how common is it for a person to just sort of go missing? never to be heard from again, or in the worst case, being found months or years later in a shallow grave. To become really anonymous now would require a tremendous effort, at least in my opinion. Number one would require no use of social media accounts, or at the very least, a minimal usage that does not give away who you are or hint of where you had originally come from. 
you would also have to move to a new place. Far enough away that you wouldn't accidentally give yourself away to the people in your community, and keep yourself hidden in such a way that the people looking for you couldn't pick up the trail. This would involve leaving behind basically everything that you did for leisure time before the break from your old life, at least if you wanted to really protect your identity. Something as simple as a love for animals can turn what may have been one of a thousand hints the FBI obtains and ignores into a lead they take seriously and end up utilizing to solve one of the longest manhunts in the modern era. It was a love of one orange-striped cat named Tiger that brought down the hammer of FBI justice onto Whitey Bulger, for instance. Whitey James Bulger and his longtime girlfriend, Catherine Grieg, were wanted for 16 years, with Whitey being on the top of the FBI's most wanted list that entire time almost. They both managed to stay undercover, even though they lived together for the majority of that time, by paying in cash, keeping to themselves, and using a cover story that the man Grieg stayed with had Alzheimer's disease, and so was kept out of the public eye. Using the names Charlie and Carol Gasco, they lived in a Southern California town without suspicion. However, they couldn't break from one trait that they both shared, a love for and compassion towards animals. Grieg, you see, had found a stray cat which they named Tiger. They fed Tiger, took him to the vet, and actually had a picture of him in their apartment. This love for the cat led them to sometimes talk with their neighbors. It also caused Bulger to step outside while Grieg fed and played with the cat. This attention from the neighbors would end up being their downfall. One other cat-loving neighbor, Anna Bjorn's daughter, would sometimes speak to the couple as they fed Tiger, allowing her to get a good look at the couple. It was only a matter of time when Anna saw a commercial on CNN, showing the fugitives and describing some of their traits. A call to the FBI later, and a description of this cute couple that loved this animal, led to their eventual arrest and promotion of Tiger the Cat to special agent status. Obviously, only one of those things is true. Now, I know that if I was on the run, my stupid, drooling love of all things fuzzy and weird would immediately be my downfall. So I can't really say that this is a silly way to get caught. I couldn't help but feed the neighborhood raccoons or cats. And I'm sure the FBI would plaster my posters around all animal shelters, veterinary hospitals, and cat fancier association events. I'm sure the small town in New Hampshire where I'm living currently already talks about the extremely hairy guy with the green shoes who very strangely only seems to buy bird seed and hummingbird nectar besides his occasional foray to the local animal shelter to pet the adoptable rabbits. I'm like a crackhead for cuteness, and I clearly need an intervention before I start selling stolen VCRs so I can scrounge up enough money to adopt a grumble of pugs. Anyways, besides hiding while you're alive, how likely is it that you could just up and die without anyone noticing? In a world where there are huge amounts of medical and social media data on you at any given time, is it possible, or will it continue to be possible in only a matter of years, to be a missing person who is never found? Dental records, for instance, can be used quite successfully to identify bodies, from the positioning of individual teeth, their size, the depth and position of your bite, and other things. Just one dental x-ray could be enough to merge the gap 
between mysterious Somerton man-like mystery and a sad case of a missing person turning up deceased. Tattoos are another thing that can be used in the absence of more forensic-style data. And with social media and everyone having a camera phone, it seems increasingly easy for people to put the tattoo to the person. Facial recognition software itself is also becoming much more advanced. With a computer algorithm able to analyze your facial structure and then utilize that information to pick you out of a lineup of possible matching faces. And ultimately, in many cases, it appears that the major piece that is missing for identification to happen is a lack of data being shared across police networks. For instance, if you're missing in Georgia, it is unlikely that the body of an unknown vagrant in California will be tested to see if it is your body. Instead, many of these cases continue to be localized, which may lead to potential leads or clues no longer being investigated. Another huge problem is that sometimes, even though we may not want to talk about it, the public at large doesn't seem to care about certain classes of people going missing. And perhaps that is too harsh of a statement. The public, as well as law enforcement, in many ways, expects certain groups of people, for instance those involved in prostitution, to go missing or turn up murdered, and so may not take their deaths or patterns of deaths as seriously as may be warranted. In some cases, serial killers seem to go free because of the lack of police investigation due to this sort of bias. As was the case with Lonnie Franklin Jr., a.k.a. the Grim Sleeper, who was only recently caught. The Grim Sleeper operated as far as we currently know from 1985 to 2007, with a 14-year hiatus in between his first and final series of killings, with one spanning from 1985 to 88, and the next from 2002 to 2007 with his then-eventual capture in 2010. This garnered him the nickname Grim Sleeper, and made his case that much more difficult for law enforcement to close. His victims, many of whom were involved in illegal activities, including prostitution, ended up as statistics, with investigations into their deaths as a series of linked serial killings very difficult for law enforcement seemingly to take seriously at first. In fact, members of their neighborhoods created a group called the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders, in the hopes of acknowledging the killings from 85 to 88 as the work of a serial killer, and offered a reward for their capture. These crimes were eventually linked to the so-called Southside Slayer, when the LAPD and LA Sheriff's Department determined that the cases were likely caused by a single person. However, subsequent evidence would show that a number of killers may have been to blame, leading to mistaken arguments for another killer who committed the so-called Strawberry Murders. And throughout this time, there was no acknowledgement that the increasing number of murders with similar sorts of MOs could be due to a single person. To be fair, though, the MO is not necessarily uncommon. Sex workers seemingly were turning up dead in alleyways and side streets, shot in the chest, something that is an unfortunately common thing for police in major cities to turn up. According to the U.S. Department of Health, a prostitute is more than 20 times as likely as the average citizen to be murdered, and they are on average likely to be beaten 12 times in a year. It wasn't until 2007 when DNA evidence found on the latest victim, Janisha Peters, was found to correspond to DNA found on 11 other cold cases going back to 1985. And even then, 
the police were reluctant to release information that a serial killer was on the loose. Even more shocking is the fact that one of his potential victims survived, later able to give a description of the perpetrator and his car, when she escaped from him in 1988. When Lonnie Franklin Jr. was found, he had hundreds of Polaroid pictures of nude women in his home, many of whom continue to have not been identified. Truly terrifying. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. In this sort of case, it becomes clear how easy it is for someone to potentially fall through the cracks or to have their death or disappearance taken for granted, or assumed to be part of the unfortunate but everyday facts of life. Just look at the number of missing children reported every year, and think about how many you've heard about. Now, these numbers are from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NCMEC, which they collected from FBI numbers. According to them, there were 460,699 missing child cases in 2015, and 466,949 in 2014. These are total numbers, and actually show a decrease in cases from 2014 to 2015. However, according to NCMEC itself, they have assisted in the recovery of something like 220,000 missing children. So that means something like two-thirds of these cases have not been satisfactorily solved. Now, obviously, like any statistic... These numbers have a lot of weird things included or not included. For instance, if a child runs away multiple times, each one is listed as a separate case in the database. Similarly, if a kid runs away to live a new life with a relative, so is technically safe, but never reported as found to the proper authorities, then it will also not be counted. It also includes overstays with custodial parents and things like that. On the other hand, numbers could also be significantly understated. For instance, in cases outside of the U.S. or in places where child welfare reporting systems are not as well established. If anything, the research for this episode has at the very least led me to see just how difficult it is to figure out the statistics surrounding crime data. For instance, if you check out the information available on the FBI website for the NCIC, or National Crime Information Center, They gave you data using a bunch of very strange spreadsheet-like graphs with sort of confusing terminology. As far as I can tell, however, I have read these things correctly, so fingers crossed. In 2013, there were a total of 627,911 records for missing persons added to the database, followed by 630,911 records removed. These removal of records include 47,544 locates, 478,094 modifieds, 
and 584,749 clears, or cases being removed for some reason other than that the person was located or the case was modified. But I just can't get my head around what the heck these charts mean in terms of total people actually missing and never located. Some sources say that 2013 data points to about 80,000 missing people in the U.S., but where that number comes from is a mystery to my mind. Perhaps they are averaging all years together, because in the early 90s, the number of cases added to cases closed was much higher, sometimes as much as 10 to 15% higher, whereas since like 1998, the numbers have been steadily going down, at least in terms of number of new cases opened and closed in that year. However, if we take that 80,000 figure as being okay, it's present on CNN at least, that suggests something like .0002 as the ratio of missing persons to non-missing in the United States. So pretty low, about 1 in 5,000. As an aside, looking at unidentified persons is even crazier. There were 866 total entries for unidentified persons, and 707 cancels of those. So something like 160 unidentified people in 2013 were found by the FBI. Now, most of those make sense. There were, for instance, 18 catastrophe victims unidentified, then identified by the FBI at some point in 2013. But there were also 121 deceased persons never identified. And even more astounding, there are 38 living unidentified persons who the FBI are currently trying to identify. The FBI says for the living category, quote, a person who is living and unable to ascertain his or her identity, e.g. amnesia victim, infant, etc. The information on unidentified living persons should only be included if the person gives his slash her consent or if they are physically or mentally unable to give consent, end quote. That this sort of thing happens in today's era of constant social media is astounding to me, and also in many ways extremely troubling. Alright, all of those numbers, or the quest at least for some idea of how many missing persons one would expect to find in an average population in the US, has been for the scientific-ish understanding of one of the weirder and close-to-home cases of missing people and mysterious deaths in my recent memory. This list centers around the city of Boston, my personal home for the past five years as I've been doing my PhD. It seemed like every year I would turn on the radio one morning and hear about another missing college-aged male, who seemed to have just disappeared into thin air, only to reappear in the Charles River about a month later. Now, I am not the only person who noticed this pattern. And in fact, I am not even close to being the first to talk about this sort of thing in some online forum. One of the best sources for this current mystery that I found has been written by Elise Soper of the Cryptid Antiquarian blog on WordPress and Tumblr. I'll share the link to her page on the Facebook. However, it is really easy to find it if you Google Boston Missing Men, which is actually exactly what I did after Katie told me to check the post out. So... It's a pretty weird story in totality, at least on the face of it. If you heard that a person went missing one night, only to turn up a month later in a major waterway, you may assume that they committed suicide, or maybe there was foul play of some sort, but nothing to suggest a pattern. There just isn't enough to go on, right? 
When people think of crime patterns, they think of Silence of the Lamb style serial killings, where each victim dies the same way, with some calling card of the killer, a la Buffalo Bill's death head moth in the mouth, showing up to link the killer to each similar crime. But in the case of something just sort of disappearing, then showing back up in the major river running through a city, that maybe suggests something weird, but not like weird weird. Just sort of an everyday sort of tragedy for the person and their family. Well, what if it seemed to happen 11 times over a number of years? How likely is it that these are just non-related but still horrible tragedies? That's kind of the question floating around Boston at the moment, or at least floating around those of us who are interested in this sort of thing in Boston. I'm first going to do a quick rundown of the victims themselves. John DeVirio is the first that Elise points out, going missing in March 16th, 2003, when he was last seen leaving his job at BU as the head of the musicology department, which incidentally, musicology is the analysis and historical discussion of music and musical moments, sort of a humanities for musical analysis without the instruments. After going missing, he was found on April 14th, 2004, near the Cambridge Boathouse in the Charles River. His family suggested that he was happy and would never have committed suicide. Dustin Willis was last seen March 16th, 2007, leaving a bar, but his friends state that he was sober at the time. He had been speaking to his girlfriend throughout the night via cell phone, who confirmed that he was sober at the time of his going missing. However, the last call she made to the phone was answered by someone besides Dustin, who stated that they had found his phone. The phone was later found near Long Wharf that night, but Dustin's body was not found until March 21st. Police suspect that he slipped into the harbor due to the blizzard conditions that were out that night. William Hurley was last seen leaving a Bruins game October 8, 2009. His girlfriend was coming to pick him up, although she could not locate him when she arrived. His dead cell phone, which she had just spoken to him on, was found smashed later by police. His body showed up on October 14th in the Charles River, and his death was ruled not likely due to mugging by the presence of his wallet and keys on his body. Eugene Losick was last seen on CCTV, potentially going out for a cigarette at 2.24 a.m. on February 20th after a night out celebrating a friend's birthday, and his body wasn't found again until November 8th. David Mark went missing on March 2nd on the way to his sister's, leaving a bar only to be found dead on March 8th with no signs of trauma. Franco Garcia was last seen on February 21st, 2012, leaving a bar where he was out with friends. His body was found in the Chestnut Hill Reservoir near Boston College with his wallet and keys on April 11th. Police ruled this one an accidental fall. Jonathan Daly disappeared on October 2nd, 2012, only to appear tied to a cinder block in the Charles River on October 9th. Again, no history of mental illness and no missing items from his person. Eric Munsell went missing February 8th, 2014, after celebrating his birthday at a bar. His body was found on April 23rd, off the water at Long Wharf, and police have said his death is not suspicious. Josue Quispo Almendro left Somerville at 4.30 after dropping off his siblings at work, and did not return home. His car was later found in Quincy the next day, and his body later washed up in Plymouth on November 12th. Now, this one is really weird, because how the heck did his body end up in Plymouth, an hour's drive from Quincy, 
if he didn't drive there. Potentially, he floated. But that still leaves us with the weird question. Why or how did he end up in the water in the first place? Dennis Naroge, the student at my university, who first caused me to start thinking about this weird series of events, and caused Elise Soper, in part, to write up her blog post. He left campus on November 30th, after talking on the phone with his mother, a call that she said was totally normal. His body washed up on December 31st, 2015 in the Charles River. No signs of trauma once again. And finally, the potentially strangest and most recent case. Zachary Marr was out at the bar celebrating his birthday on February 13th, 2016. At 1.30 a.m., he stepped outside for a cigarette, but was not allowed back into the bar. When his friend stepped out to meet him a few minutes later, he was not there. He was last seen on CCTV at 1.44 a.m. walking past the public market towards the TD Garden, only a few blocks away from the tavern where he was drinking. The Boston Globe would later report that police have found video showing him actually entering the water near a railroad bridge after walking along the same bridge that night. His body was later found on March 15th. I don't want to cause any undue harm to the families of these victims, no matter what occurred to them. And I hope that they don't think that discussing these cases is in some way bad taste or continuing to prolong their grief. But it is hard to hear these cases in their details and not think that there is some kind of pattern going on. And it's even stranger to hear about a young man, who is my own age, leaving a bar and area that I frequent regularly, and just deciding that he will enter the water in the cold Boston winter. Obviously, I don't know if it was suicide, a mistaken prank, or a misstep, or an accidental fall into the water as claimed in the other cases. But it seems extremely weird that there are so many of these same cases in a city like Boston. New York City, where I grew up, sprawls across five boroughs, with about 300 square miles of total area. And throughout my childhood and into my young adulthood, I can't recall a single case of someone just going missing, only to turn up in the waterways. Boston, on the other hand, is just under 90 square miles, and I seem to hear about them somewhat regularly. And one seems to have happened every year since 2003. I don't know if something weird is going on in Boston, but the facts seem to at the very least suggest that this whole being weirded out by all of these disappearances things isn't something to just discard out of hand. Maybe the high concentration of college students in the area of Boston causes suicide or accidental deaths to be higher than in other places due to the highly stressful and potentially lonely situations that many college-aged individuals may find themselves in. Add in alcohol and almost ever-present waterways in the city of Boston, and maybe it isn't such a stretch to think that these things are just happening due to sad, but not strange or scary circumstances. According to a number of sources, the average amount of suicides per year in colleges are 1,100, or 7.5 per 100,000 students. Boston has a population of over 152,000 students at maximum capacity during the year, and that's just Boston, not including the surrounding cities of Cambridge or Somerville or Medford. And Boston itself has almost 30 colleges or universities. So really, considering these individuals as potential suicides is not all that far out of the norm. However, their similarities potentially speak to something more. I will still say, though, 
we can all probably go out and enjoy Boston's bars and restaurants without any fear. I know at least that I still will. So although there isn't really an answer this week to this sort of question of what is going on to the men in Boston, I think at least that we can see that statistically these things aren't so out of the norm to think that it couldn't just be due to the high concentration of students inside of the Boston city limits. However, I would keep my ear out for more cases like this, because maybe something weird is going on. That's it for this week's episode. I may have actually filled up the amount of space I pay for on Podbean with this one, but if not, I'll be back in about two to three weeks. And ramping up to the best time of year, and the very best holiday of them all, Halloween, I'm hoping to get continually more spooky and weird. Also be on the lookout for more YouTube videos, the first of which I hope will be on explaining entropy and the different ways people misuse it for pseudoscientific claims. As always, you can reach out to me here on Podmean, or you can send me emails at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. I'm also available on Twitter, Facebook, WordPress, Tumblr, all sorts of social media things. Until next week, thank you again for listening. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.